Some of you have walked into this room today and you feel like your hope is gone. Some of you may be in this room and for a number of years you wandered away from your faith and you're trying to find your way back. Some of you may have no clue why you're here, but God's got you here for a reason. We're in a series on Hope is Rising, and I want to invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to the book of Job. If you do not know where Job is, feel free to look at the index, or open about halfway up in your Bible to the book of Psalms and take a left. Job is the last book before the book of Psalms. We're going to talk this morning about hope when life seems hopeless. And I want to ask you to pray very specifically, even as you're listening and as you're taking notes. I'm going to ask you to pray for people in this room that feel like life is hopeless right now. And I'm going to ask us to be very attentive and to avoid movement because I believe that God has a word for people in this room today with specific areas they need hope in, and we'll come to that at the end of the message. Corrie ten Boom is a woman that is known in Christian circles, one of the most remarkable women that, uh, of the 20th century. She and her family helped hundreds of Jews to escape from Nazi concentration camps until they were finally discovered themselves. Corey spent four months in solitary confinement. And while she was in solitary confinement, she could hear the screams of those being tortured in other cells. This is what she said. Once I stood with my back against the wall, with my hands spread out as if to try to push away the walls that were closing in on me, I was dead scared. I cried out, Lord, I'm not strong enough to endure this. I don't have the faith. She said that one day she noticed an ant crawling across the room and the ant got in some water on the floor and immediately ran straight to a tiny hole in the wall. And she said at that moment, it was as if the Lord said to me, what about that ant? He didn't stop to look at the wet floor or his weak feet. He went straight to his hiding place. Corey, don't look at your faith. It is weak. I am your hiding place. And you can come running to me just like that ant disappeared into that hole in the wall. We all need a hiding place. We need a place when we feel helpless and hopeless. You cannot look at the book of Job, you can't even glance at it casually without realizing this is a story of a man who suffered greatly. He was one who shows us what happens when people suffer. There's an incredible story. It's probably the earliest book in the Bible. He's a contemporary of Abraham. We don't know who wrote the book, but we know that he lived in the land of us. He was a wealthy and a prominent man, and suddenly he lost everything. 
He's not a mythical figure. I, I when uh, I was in uh, college and seminary, sometimes you'd hear professors say, well, Job is just a story that was written to try to help people understand. No, he's not a mythical figure because he is mentioned by Ezekiel in the Old Testament and by James in the New Testament. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now, the one thing you need to note about that description, that's God's description of him. That's not his mother talking. That's what God thought about Job. God had a high opinion of this man from the time of Abraham. And it's his evaluation. He was blameless. He was blameless because he feared God. He was upright because he turned away from evil. He was a God-fearing man. Verse 3, he was the greatest of all the men in the East. Verses 4 and 5 tells us that he was a godly father. He, he would pray for his children. Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And so Job had a day of prayer for his children, and he offered an offering on their behalf to say, just in case they didn't get that they had sinned against God, I want to offer an offering, and I want to pray on behalf of my children, and I want to put their names before the God of heaven, and I want to ask God that they would be wholly dedicated to the Lord. Here is a man who was serious about his faith on every level, and at the same time, Something's going on in heaven that he doesn't know about. You know, if you could hear the conversations in heaven about you, you would probably view your life differently. Job did not know that there was about to be a conversation between God and the devil. Job was not made aware. He could not look behind the curtain. He didn't see the script he didn't know it was coming. There was no forewarning. God did not show up in the form of an angel and say, Now, Job, God's just staked a lot on you and on your response to suffering and adversity. <laughs> Stand up, man. It's going to be tough, but God's got faith in you. He didn't get any of that. And so here we have a man, and you see the accuser and the accusation. I want you to look at beginning in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? It's not that the Lord didn't know. He just wanted Satan to admit. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now notice, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. And so now God repeats what we read in the previous verse. He's blameless, an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now. And touch all that he has, and he will surely cuss you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, 
All that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Here's a problem. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, you're going to have a problem with this. God allowed the devil permission to test Job. God allowed it because God believed he could trust Job with the test. Now, God brags on Job. He's blameless and upright and fearing God. I'm kind of like Ron Dunn. If God ever wants to brag on me, I'm going to point out to somebody else. I mean, none of us would volunteer for what Job went through, and Job didn't volunteer for it, but he went through it, and he endured it. And if you read the end of the book, he came out blessed of God. One of the keys to understanding the book in regards to suffering is that Satan is not equal to God. We have bought this false theology that somehow God and Satan are in this battle, and it's four seconds left in the game before Jesus returns and, and the Saints kick a 65-yard field goal, miraculous field goal, and we beat the devil 17-14. to 14. Boy, glad we won. The battle's already won. The war's already been fought. Jesus has already overcome everything we have to fear. Satan and God are not equal. Satan has to ask God permission to do this. Now, the bad news is God sometimes grants it because there's something about us that we need to learn because there's something about Christ and our faith that others need to see. Sometimes God grants the test. So this is not a battle. This is a test. God is going to allow Job's faith to be tested. And notice it is not Satan who challenges God it is God who challenges Satan. Have you considered? I mean, God's the one that brought Job up. I've been roaming the earth. Well, while you're roaming the earth, did you notice my buddy Job? Oh, yeah, but the only reason he follows you is because you take care of him. Let, let me ask you a question. Can God trust you with a test? You see, in American Christianity, with everything about health and wealth, and then we go to this sorry theology that says, well, if you don't get well, or if you don't get what you want, it's because you didn't have the seed faith gift, or you didn't put enough in the offering, or you didn't have enough faith. That is poor theology. And let me tell you, the only theology that works is theology that will work in a mud hut in Africa. Because if you can't promise somebody a brand new car and a gated community and money in the bank when they're trying to figure out how they're going to get their next meal, you're not sharing the gospel with them. The gospel is not about what we have. It's about who we have. The gospel is about our relationship with Christ, whether we have it all or have nothing. And so here's Job. Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, yeah, well, yeah, but he's your fair-haired boy. You like him more than you like everybody else. But if you took all that stuff away, you take away those blessings and he'll curse you. Here's the devil's fundamental attitude. The devil's fundamental attitude is self-serving is the fundamental law of life. That's the way this world operates. 
serve myself, take care of myself, look after myself. It's all about me. That's the way the world operates. And why does the world operate that way? Because the devil is in the midst of this world. And he tells us, this is the way you get ahead, by serving yourself. Job was a man who served God. You need to note it. Note that God put a limit on what the devil could do. But I want to tell you, even with that limit, it would have shaken any of us to our core. So look at verse 13 and following. One report after another comes in. The livestock are dead. His children are all killed. All his workers were killed. Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. Now that's a different response. I mean, he's got ten graves. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. That's what's called a high view of God. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin or blame God. Well, it gets worse in chapter 2. You'd think that was enough. I mean, he's lost his children. He's lost his livestock. He's lost his prosperity. He's basically bankrupt and having just presided over the funerals of 10 children. And Satan comes again and asks for permission to take away not only Job's stuff, but Job's health. He didn't believe that Job was all God said he was. Uh, Job's not all he's cracked up to be. Yeah, a guy can endure all that, and that's tough, and it's a big deal. But if you touch him personally, he'll curse you and die. Verse 9, does Job serve God or fear God for nothing? The message translates that. So do you think Job does all of that out of sheer goodness of his heart? The New English says, is it for nothing that Job fears God? The Living Bible says, why shouldn't he when you pay him so well? The accusations weren't directed at, at Job, but at God himself. You remember, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Now, Satan is, had the boldness to not just accuse Job, but he's accusing God. And, and so Jimmy Draper says, if Satan's premise were correct... No one would ever serve God because he is God. And no one would adore and worship him simply for who he is. Look at verse 11. Stretch out your hand, God, and he will curse you, God, to your very face. And here's the affirmation of the afflicted. Job loses his wealth, his family, his health. His wife says to him, look at chapter 2 and verse 9. Verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, bless the name of the Lord. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed, this is a good question. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Chapter 13 and verse 15 is a verse that you probably know out of the book of Job. Though he slay me, 
I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. You know, being in ministry as long as I have, I've watched people have minor setbacks and major setbacks. I've watched some curse God and blame God and become angry at God. And I've watched others embrace it and trust God in the darkest of valleys. I've watched people bury children. I've watched people deal with debilitating diseases, some with joy and some with anger. I've watched people that have learned to trust God in the hardest times and those that can't trust God with a hangnail. I've seen every end of the spectrum of how people respond to crisis and to problems and to adversity. So I want to give you some help today. And if you don't normally take notes, I would encourage you to begin taking notes today because you're going to need this. And don't, don't call the office in six months when the bottom falls out and say, I don't remember what message it was or where it was. Or, I don't remember anything. There were three things that Michael said. I, I can't remember what they Could y'all find that? I'm just telling you now, get your pen, your lipstick, your mascara out and take some notes. These three things that I want you to remember, and then we're going to go into something else. I learned from Charles Lowry, who will be here at the end of November. They have been the most practical lessons anybody's ever shared with me. I, I called Charles one day with a painful, perplexing problem. And I didn't know what to do. I knew how I wanted to act and how I wanted to react, but I didn't know what to do and I needed some perspective. So, you know, Charles says every year when he's here, you know, I'm Michael Shrink. Well, he is. So I called him and I asked him for help. How, how do I deal with this? And he gave me three words. Three words that have helped me at times keep my sanity when I wanted to pull my hair out. Number one, it's not permanent. Whatever you're going through, whatever crisis that you're facing, whatever problem, whatever news from the doctor, whatever adversity it is, it's not permanent. Someone said the only thing that's permanent is death and taxes, but death is even not permanent because there's life after death, either in heaven or in hell. But it, it, it's not permanent. It's not the end. Why? Because we have a resurrected Lord that has overcome death and hell and the grave, which are the three things that man fears more than anything is death, hell, and the grave. And he's overcome all of that. So first of all, it's not permanent. Don't, don't act like it's permanent. You don't know what the last chapter is yet. Job did not know what the last chapter was. He did not know how all this was going to turn out. Secondly, don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. This happens with parents when they have prodigal children. This happens with spouses that have been neglected or rejected by their spouse. It happens when 
when the job is gone. This happens in a thousand situations. We, we begin to take it personally. And, and all of a sudden, the devil whispers in our ear and says, you're the only one that's ever gone through this. How terrible. Don't take it personally. And, and let me just give you a little thought here. When people are going through crisis and through problems, and when it seems hopeless to them, they don't need a sermon from you. What they need is a hug. What they need is a hand on their shoulder. What they need is a simple, I'm praying for you. Listen, if somebody loses a baby, do not use the line, well, I guess God needed another angel in heaven. Babies don't become angels. That's stinking thinking. That's bad theology. That is a life that is given with the breath of God in it. And it is a life that will be in heaven. So don't tell somebody something that's not true. When somebody has cancer, don't say to them, well, you know, must have been something you did because I tell you, God wouldn't have done that. God's never done that with me. You just invited the devil into your own life. Don't take it personally, but don't try to fix everybody's problem. Okay, don't, don't show up at the funeral home visitation. Don't show up in the hospital room and you think you've got all the answers. Erwin Lutzer told a story this week at the Cove, and actually he was preaching on Job. I'd written my message three weeks ago, and he was preaching on Job, and he said, you know, he said, I remember this family, and I'd presided over a funeral and, and saw them years later, and they said to me, we so appreciate what you said to us. He said, and I got to thinking about it, and he said, I really didn't say anything. I was just there I didn't say anything you know what nobody's going to remember what you said and nobody's going to go home and you know get their Bible out and write down your profound thought in the front of their Bible they don't need a Hallmark card as much as they need a holy person to come beside them and say I'm going to ask God to let me understand what you're feeling so I know better how to pray for you. I got a friend of mine that's going through some very difficult times right now. He's being attacked and his family's being attacked. So about two weeks ago, I just sent him an email and I sent him a text message and I said this. I just want you to know that I'm praying that God will allow me to feel some of the pain that you feel. So some of it will go off of you and I can walk through this battle with you. And that's all I said. It's two sentences. Don't take it personally. Don't, don't think you got singled out because there must be something wrong with you. We live in a sinful, fallen world. That's reality. And these things happen to us because we live in a sinful, fallen world. 
Can I just give you a statement here? It's not going to come up on the screen, but you ought to write it down. Don't try to be profound, just be present. Don't try to be profound, just be present. Well, you know, Job had three friends. Now, with friends like this, you don't need friends. And they would have rewritten to him, blame God, blame God from whom all problems flow. Blame him, all creatures here below. You see, don't let superficial people that don't know what God knows try to speak to you as if they know all the facts. Because they may not. This is the big one. Don't let it be pervasive. Don't let it be pervasive. Now just think about it. If it's your prodigal child, your broken home, your unloving spouse, your finances, your health, Anything that becomes all you think about other than God becomes God. And if it's your health or your prodigal or whatever it is, if that's all you can talk about and all you can think about, you have given that, it, or them more power in your life than they should have. When I called Charles, this was the one that got me. Because this is the one that gets all of us. Because all of us want to talk about the problem. And then we say, well, you know, I know God's in control. We talk for 40 minutes about the problem, but I, but I know God's in control. That means that the problem has become pervasive and you know more about what you feel about the problem than what you believe about God. Don't let it be pervasive. Don't let it dominate your life. Listen, here, here's, here's something you've got to learn. Can you be happy in Christ even if this situation doesn't change? Because if you cannot be happy in Christ even if this situation doesn't change, then that situation has become your God rather than the loving, kind, and caring God as your God. You know what? If Satan got his way to do what he wanted to, we would all be wrecked. All of us. He has to get permission. That's the bad news. The good news is God trusts us with tests and with trials. I was asking, uh, as we were riding back from the cove and talking about the conference on Job, I asked Jim McBride, I said, Jim, what was the most important thing you heard at the conference? He said, the fact that there's a conversation going on in heaven that I don't know about. What's the conversation in heaven about you today? Is that God can trust you? Is your conversation with him that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you could ever hope or imagine? Or is it, oh, ye of little faith? Here's where we're going to get into a lot of stuff. Most of you know Tom and Jeannie Ellis. Tom and Jeannie have been dear friends of ours for decades. Tom's former president of the International Mission Board. He's a pastor. He was a missionary. While they were missionaries in Africa, 
their car was sabotaged trying to kill uh, Jeannie and their children. One of their daughters had severe burns over her body and an obvious attack on them. Their house burned down in 1999. They had another house that was destroyed by fire. I mean, you kind of start thinking you're reading Job chapter 1 sometimes when you hear Tom and Jeannie's story. I've always counted it curious that Tom signs every letter he's ever written, Rejoice Evermore. Now, some of us, if we had 5% of that happen, we'd be calling the prayer room and crying and whining and moaning and groaning and I don't think God loves me I don't think God loves me it's amazing that a guy whose wife has died of cancer and still signs his letters rejoice evermore Tom in many ways uh, since um, Ron Dunn died has been my pastor and I get spiritual counsel from him we talk probably once or twice a week seek him out for wisdom to make sure I'm doing the right thing and we took Jeannie to Israel on her last trip to Israel she had gone through chemotherapy she had cancer three times she'd gone through chemotherapy and I called him one day the Lord just told me he said Michael you need to do this and so I called and I said Tom get Jeannie on the phone I said listen if you can get through chemotherapy and if you can get strong enough I want to take the two of you to Israel one more time. And I want to tell you something. Head in a scarf, <laughs> recovering from chemotherapy. She and Tom sat right behind us on the bus. She never missed anything. I mean, she'd push through the crowd. I mean, she's up there. You know, it didn't matter if anybody else was trying to take notes. Jeannie was going to see it all. And she never missed anything. And Tom said, you know, aren't you tired? She said, I'm not tired. I'm going to catch all of this. I'm doing everything. And she had been to Israel dozens of times. When the cancer came back for the third time and had spread, and there was little more that could be done, Terry and I flew out on a Monday Landed in Oklahoma City at about 9.30 on Monday morning. Drove straight to the Ellis home. Went back to the bedroom. Spent about an hour with them. Prayed with them. Left and got back on a plane. And about the time I walked into the house at about 10 o'clock that night, I got a text message from Tom. Jeannie is with Jesus. We were privileged to be in the room with a godly woman who was dying like a Christian. I've been in the room with people that die, and not everybody dies like a Christian. We flew back. Ken Jenkins and Daniel Simmons and I went to the funeral on Friday. Tom has been here. Our choir, recording of our choir, was played at the funeral. The Sunday after Jeannie died, we had an empty seat in the choir loft because Jeannie always sang in the choir when they were here for refresh. In 2007, when she first got cancer, Tom and Jeannie wrote 
a cancer protocol. So I want to share it with you. Because if you have cancer or a member of your family has cancer, you need to learn some of these principles. And they'll help you. Number one, in everything, we will seek to glorify the Lord. In everything. What do you do when you get a life-threatening disease? What do you do when the bottom falls out? What do you do when everything you've known as normal becomes abnormal and now there's a new normal? In everything, we will seek to glorify the Lord. Number two, our hearts will rest in Him not in our circumstances or in reports. Our hearts will rest in Him, not in our circumstances or in reports. Nobody has the last word except God. God always gets the last word. Number three, our adversary will be given no ground in all of this. Our adversary will be given no ground in all of this. Number four, our desire is that this would bring us closer to God and to each other. Our desire is that this would bring us closer to God and to each other. I, I would say here before I, I move on, I'm grateful for the prayer partnership of Tom and Jeannie in the midst of them dealing with their own cancer and for the prayers of Tom and Jeannie. And I still speak of Jeannie in the present tense for the simple reason that her prayers are still being heard. And she is more alive today than she's ever been. The prayers of the saints do not stop when the saint stops breathing. They continue on. And I know for a fact that Tom and Jeannie have spent hours praying for my family, weeping with us, for us, calling out our names to God. Number five, we will purpose to be a blessing to each other and to others as well. We will purpose to be a blessing to each other and to others as well. Number six, a big one. We will not be afraid to ask God some serious questions as we pray for healing. We will not be afraid to ask God some serious questions as we pray for healing. As Brother Manley Beasley used to say, he may not answer, but if he does, we will know how better to cooperate with him. Don't be afraid to ask God serious questions. He can handle it. He's tough and tender. Number seven. This is a long one. You might just can get some key words off of this one. We will continue to believe that God's plan is for us to live long and fruitful lives. And we will face each day with zeal for God, love for Him, and a positive dose of gratitude and good humor.
coupled with great Christian music and heavy doses of the word. I find it interesting in developing their protocol that they included, included in that positive doses of gratitude and good humor, coupled with great Christian music and heavy doses of the word. When you walked in Tom and Jeannie's house or when you were around them, there was always praise music being played. Even by her bed on her last day, there was music on her phone just softly being played. Her children would come in the room and sing hymns of praise around her. What other kind of music do you need at a time like that? Number eight, in all things, Christ will have preeminence. Number nine, we will order our steps according to what we perceive as God's counsel, letting him show us which sources are providing it and which are not. In other words, I want to hear from God. I want to know when God's speaking into our lives. I want to know when somebody's speaking that's not speaking from God in our life. Number 10, we will seek to learn all that God has for us in this walk of faith and use what we learn to the glory of God and the benefit of others. Seeking to learn all that God has for us in this walk of faith. Not just trying to learn it, but trying to use what we learn to the glory of God and the benefit of others. Number 11, we will continually stand guard against faithlessness or any ungodly attitude. And number 12, we will pray for those who attend to our needs in this hour and for others who now find themselves with their own painful, perplexing, long-term problems. We will pray for those who attend to our needs in this hour. One of the lines in uh, Aaron's new movie, New Life, is, is uh, the her character goes through cancer and one of the inspirations for that movie was Jeannie Ellef. And so she had a long conversation with Tom and Jeannie and uh, said, how do you address this and how do you deal with this? And there's a lot of input uh, from them about how you deal with a story about someone having cancer. Well, one of the things that, that Jeannie said, she said, you know, when I walk into chemotherapy, Every time I walk in, I say, well, hello, chemosabis. <laughs> and so in the movie, there's a line, chemosabis. Even in the hardest of times, find hope. Know that it's not permanent. And know that it doesn't have to be pervasive. So here's what I'm going to ask us to do. A little different invitation this morning. But if you are a member of your immediate family, immediate family, you are a member of your immediate family, 
is going through cancer right now, I'm going to ask you to get up right now from where you are and just come to this altar and kneel because we're going to pray over you today. You are a member of your immediate family. I want to ask you just get up and just come to this altar. We're going to linger here for a while. We're going to let these get to the altar. You or a member of your family has cancer. I want to just ask you just to kneel if you would. I want to give people time that are coming from the balconies and from the mezzanines to get down here. If you can't kneel, then you can just stand there. But I don't want anybody to leave during this time. This is too important. Too important. Now here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you in the congregation have had a member of your family who has either survived or died of cancer, I'm going to ask you to come get behind these people and stand behind them to pray over them. You or somebody in your family has died or has survived cancer. I'm going to ask you to just come get behind them. Now, those of you that are kneeling, over half of this room is moving toward you right now. You are not alone in what you're going through. You are not alone in what you're going through. There are others here that have walked through this valley and walked through this battle. I want to give folks time just to get as close as they can. I'm just going to ask you just to get as close as you can to these people that are here at this altar. Some of you know exactly what these folks are going through. You've walked down this dark road. Some of you have heard the all clear. And some of you have heard there's nothing we can do. So you know how to pray. You know how to get into their situation and identify with them in this moment and in this time, in this season in their life. So I'm going to ask you just to pray out loud. Whether you're down here at the front with them or you're out there, I'm going to ask you just to pray out loud for people that are suffering through painful, perplexing problems right now. They're going through cancer. They're dealing with adversity in their life. I'm just going to ask you to plead for the mercy and the grace of God on these families right now for this moment. Pray out loud. Let God hear your voice bombarding heaven right now.
Father, in the name of Jesus, the God of mercy and grace and comfort and goodness, we acknowledge that we live in a fallen world. It is a world full of sickness and sin and evil. And it doesn't seem fair. But we come before you in the name of Jesus who suffered death at the hands of sinful men. We ask for your grace on these individuals who either are going through cancer right now or who have family members that are going through it and they don't know what the future holds right now. So God, I pray that just the very fact that these at this altar are surrounded by hundreds of people who have been where they are. That you would strengthen them in the Holy Spirit. That you would encourage them with a word from your word. That you would remind them that the promises of God are true and that man never has the final word. God, we pray for healing. We pray for a touch in the physical realm so that there might be testimonies of the healing power of Jesus. And Father, we pray for those that for whatever reason will not be healed that their testimony will be praise on their lips for as long as you give breath. May the world look and marvel at the faith of the saints of God in the most serious times, in the times when the adversary wants to let loose on us and put fear in us. Would you surround these at the altar with encouragement, strength, hope, and peace. May some of those who are their caregivers find faith in Christ by just being around them. May their doctors and nurses see their faith portrayed boldly. Lord, we put our faith in you today. I want us with our heads bowed, you know the words to this song. I want us to just sing one verse of this song, then I'm going to give us some instructions before we leave. So I'm just going to ask you to stay where you are, and let's sing this song, and then I want to give you a couple of words, and then we'll be dismissed.
would you just look this way for just a moment? Those of you that are here that you are an immediate member of your family are dealing with cancer right now, here's what I want to ask you to do when we leave. This is Tom Ellis' new book, The Unwanted Gift. It is Jeannie's testimony. It is their story of walking through cancer. And it is available today. If you or an immediate member of your family has cancer, then we have a copy for you in the source for free. We want to give it to you as an investment in your life because you've got an unwanted gift right now. How is God going to help you deal with that? So if you'll go into the Source bookstore and give them your information because we want to make sure we've got your correct information because we want to make sure you're in our intercessory prayer ministry. So we want to be able to pray for you specifically. So if you can give them your information, then you're going to get a free copy of this. For the rest of you, we have some other copies available out in the atrium. Now, this book is normally $14.99. It'll sell for $11.99 in the Source Bookstore. But today, until we run out, you can get this book for $10. Now, if you're down here and you've been kneeling, you don't have to buy this book today. Okay, this is a gift to you, to your family. But if you're standing and you know somebody going through cancer, it's a great tool to say, put your faith in God in the midst of a trying time. So I want to encourage you to go by and pick these up. We may run out before the morning's over, and I apologize for that, but we've got about uh, 70 or so copies that we can sell, and we've got about 30 uh, for those down here. So everybody clear? This is a heavy service. But where else would you want to be if you're struggling? than with the people of God. Now, I want you to stay where you are. Those of you that are kneeling, I want to ask you to stand. And I want you to look back in this room at all the people that have either lost a loved one to cancer, they've had cancer in their families. I want you to just look around. Backed up and down these aisles in the mezzanines, all the way back, there are people that are going through what you have gone through and are going through. Don't ever let the devil tell you that you are alone. You are not alone. 